This is Pastor Mike from Jordan Lutheran Church, and you're about to hear one of our Sunday morning messages. At Jordan, we're passionate about learning from the Bible and pray that this message makes an impact in your life. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. All right, anyone willing to admit that you've watched television? I know, all right. It's a pseudo-trap. Half of you admit you watch television, the other half know it's a trap. All right, I get it, I get it. So here's the second half. How many of you know the phrase, keeping up with the Joneses? All right. How many of you, don't answer it, I'm just warning you. How many of you have ever seen a program called Keeping Up with the Kardashians? Good, good, good. That's fine, that's fine, that's fine. Okay, here's why I bring it up. This concept of keeping up with the Joneses, keeping up with the Kardashians, believe it or not, uh, I had to look this up because I don't know. Hopefully this is good news that I didn't know this. 17 seasons. Yeah, 17 seasons. Uh, and lots of spinoffs to do so. Uh, and what's unique is, if you don't know it, uh, the show follows uh, the Kardashians, the Jenners, and a whole bunch of other uh, families uh, because we're supposed to care what they do. Now you laugh because we watch it. The only reason it had 17 seasons is people are watching and they are being influenced and they are purchasing the things that are shown on the show because they are keeping up with the Joneses. It just so happens now it's the Kardashians, the Jenners, uh, and all other things in between. Now I bring this up because this morning uh, our text has us in Corinth. We're reading the first and second letter to the church in Corinth. Uh, we are reading the entire Bible this year. We started in Genesis, and each week we read a letter. Now, we're reading two of Paul's this week as we just focus on Corinth. Now, why bring up the Joneses and the Kardashians? Because to understand Corinth, you have to understand uh, Corinth probably looks a lot closer to the Kardashians than you know, even though you probably don't have to have ever seen the show to realize the Kardashian lifestyle uh, hopefully doesn't look a whole lot like yours. Uh, there are some redeeming qualities in there. Uh, I'm not quite sure exactly where, where they would be at all days. Uh, but as we look to it, it's this unique piece. So in Corinth, there was a phrase. It was called, live like a Corinthian. It was actually a phrase, like to live like a Corinthian. Someone actually used it as a verb, like to Corinthianize someone. And if you lived like a Corinthian or you Corinthianized someone, uh, it meant that you, uh, some of you might call this, you had a night of hard living. It's a kind way to say it. Uh, you had an adventure. Uh, you know, you went clubbing. You went out. The English word that we would use that's nice is you engaged in debauchery. But that's not nice. You never came home to your parents and said, that was your night. You said, Mom, some good debauchery. <laughs> if you ever tried it, I guarantee your night and next morning and probably the next few months looked very different than what you had envisioned. Uh, but this is the picture uh, that we get into. Now, we laugh a little bit, but think about this. It is amazing that today we have television programs, experiences, and shows that now talking about the concept of sleeping with multiple people before marriage is not only uh, accepted, but encouraged. Now, this may have happened 30 or 50 years ago. I'm not saying that any of you here are like, yes, none of us ever did anything, and none of our friends did anything. But now it's not only just happening, People say you need to, because this is how things get fixed. 
This is how we make sure that marriage works. How could you ever get married to someone if you haven't tried all of it out? Now, you look at me with weird faces. You obviously are not reading the social sciences. Like, this is actually spoken. This is what people suggest. And to think, you thought Corinth had the corner on the market. The Kardashians and other things like it are just a small window insight into the world that we live in. Uh, and guess what? You and I, you and I live in this culture. It is around us at all times, whether we like it or not. So that idea of marriage and the way it looks is for sale. But just because it's for sale doesn't mean that you have to purchase it. <laughs> you guys ever gone to the store? Just because it's for sale doesn't mean you have to buy it. I know, but it's a really good sale. It's the President's Day sale. This is when everyone buys mattresses. But some of you are laughing, like, but those are the good ones. That's the President's Day sale. That's what presidents do. They buy mattresses. No idea why that's a, a, a big thing, uh, but it is. So let's go. Uh, open up your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So as we turn there, we're jumping in, and in the middle of this, we find ourselves with a phrase, and it's repeated multiple times throughout uh, Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, a church he planted in 49 to 50 AD. He's back five years later approximately, and he's writing to them saying, you've, you've slipped. You've slipped away from what was first taught to you. And he's writing as a person who planted the church, who at a certain level, he's got to be saying what to himself? Why didn't I prepare them? Why didn't I say the right things? Why didn't I have what they needed to be picked up? 1 Corinthians 10, 23 and 24. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now, that's an interesting phrase. All things are lawful. The phrase carries, as I was unpacking a little bit more uh, this morning in Bible class prior to worship, uh, is a phrase that one of the parties, one of the divisive parties in Corinth was using to say that they knew all things were, and you could do anything you wanted because all things are lawful. So Paul uses this mnemonic device again and again to get people to understand, I know what you've been slipping on. You've been slipping on this phrase, all things are lawful, and you forgot that just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. So as Paul begins, he says, don't just seek your good, but it actually, you live in a community. Uh, you live around others. He did this also in chapter 6, where you look back to chapter 6, that same phrase, all things are lawful, is used at that point as he builds up on a dialogue about uh, marriage and the trouble that people were getting into. Uh, here's the quick one. It was in chapter 6 uh, where one member of this party decided it was a good idea to marry his dad's wife customarily even today is frowned upon, uh, which is odd because we've got pretty low standards culturally about what we believe is right and wrong, but that one's still there. Paul even brings it up and he goes, even the pagans aren't doing that, but you in Corinth in this church body, you've decided that's good? When the culture around you says no to something in the church, you say yes to it and it's a negative thing, uh, that's bad. I mean, Corinth was off the hooks with some bad pockets in it. And Paul's addressing them. He'd actually received a letter uh, from a group that he refers to as, as Chloe's people, uh, as a group that had just written and said, hey, pastor, we know you're gone. Could you help us? Because we got some struggles. Uh, we're looking to see what's going on. Now, he moves forward in chapter 10, 
this one not talking about marriage. He's actually talking about food. Chapter uh, 10, 25 to 27, the text talks about food and the challenges of whether or not we can do something or not do something, which is really what most of you want to know. On a certain level, you come to church going, can I do this or can I not? Is this permitted or is it not? Like, in, in church, am I allowed to do this? Like, is that okay? Because, you know, 30 years ago, my parents said I couldn't do it. But now it seems to have the church revised its plan on whether I can or can't do this. Well, this is the question. And they're asking, but now they're talking about food. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising question on the ground of conscience. Now, some of you are like, what in the world? The meat market? What are we talking about? We're talking about the place where all the meat is sold in Corinth, and the meat market is housed right next to the temples. The temples to all the foreign gods all the pagan gods, and they would offer meat. And a lot of that meat would have either been given to the priests serving in that false god's temple, or to make money, meat that's offered, they'd sell it where? You guys know this. It's called the off-market. So you would have had, I offer meat to temple, and then to make money and revenue for temple, we sell it at the meat market, which is conveniently, because we don't want anyone to have to travel far with the meat, it's right next door. So you could actually, off, I mean, imagine this, you could offer your meat sacrifice to your God, little g, and then go next door and purchase back the very meat that you just gave to the God so that you could have it and go home and eat it. But you've at least made the God happy, but now you've also helped the local vendors, so you bought local. See? Isn't that nice? Yeah, one or two of you smiled. I wonder sometimes like, if you're listening, but someone's like, oh, I heard it. Okay. It's a tough crowd. All right, so 1 Corinthians 10. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For... The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising question on the ground of conscience. So Paul's writing and saying, you can eat anything you want because God made it all. We believe in God, the maker of heaven and, and earth. So he did all of it. So if you want to eat something, go for it. But if an unbeliever invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever's set, but the challenge becomes, what happens if I'm going to eat something that was sacrificed to a foreign god and the person with whom I'm actually there isn't okay with that? What if they're not comfortable with a certain action? Well, of course, we know the answer. We look at them and say, Hi, you fool, don't you know Christ can do this? I'm going to eat it in front of you and make you feel awkward. You're going to learn, right? That would be the way we would do it? Yeah, not right, Exactly. So here we go. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't question them, don't challenge them, don't do anything. If someone says that, then do not eat it. For the sake of one who informed you and for the sake of conscience, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? There's a lot going on in this passage. Two things that we'll look at. One, if someone raises it and says, I'm not comfortable with you eating that meat sacrificed to that pagan god, then don't. And it's not about your conscience. It's about theirs. That's where they are in their faith. So don't. That is not the time to give them a diatribe about, well, the fullness of God and therein and God made all and you know, explain to them the creed and all these positions. Do yourself a favor. Respect the brother or sister in Christ and just don't eat it. But then the question comes up, right? The end of verse 28. Well, why should my liberty be curtailed? Because someone else isn't as informed as, you guys know this, as me. I know it's okay. 
this little person over here doesn't get it, and my liberty is so important, why should I have to sacrifice what I want to do because they're not fully informed? Welcome to a question that plagues the church again and again and again. Am I willing to give up something that God has said I can do because I care about someone else? Unfortunately, the answer, and please, you can keep your mouths quiet. Unfortunately, more often than not, we choose us. We choose to let the other person just have to wallow and suffer rather than to realize, hey, it's okay to refrain from something. There's a lot that goes on in the world. Paul's next verse uh, actually comes out It's the beginning of the next chapter. This is one of those uh, places uh, that's unique where the chapters and verses, you have to recall, come in hundreds of years after it's written. Paul did not actually write the letter with chapters and verses. Paul wasn't like, hmm, end 10, begin 11. So if you glance at 11 verse 1, it says, be an imitator of Christ. And Christ is one who gave himself again and again and again. Be an imitator of Christ. But he starts it in this way. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be willing to be who you need to be. Paul wrote in other places where he said to the Jew, I'm a Jew. To the one who is not, I'm not. I am all things to all people. Paul knew he had to speak to the people that he was around to honor and respect where they were at that moment in their faith as long as their faith held them true to Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended Lord. If they missed that, Paul was going to correct it. That's the whole letter of the church in Corinth. He's got to correct it. But there are some things that don't have to be corrected immediately. Now, much in the world can actually be done, but not all of it builds up the body of Christ. Take, for example, music. I am sure on some level the music you grew up with, your parents were not keen on. I have no idea what music you liked, but I just know generationally that's kind of the way music goes. Like you listen to music and your parents were like, this is not good music. And now you turn on the radio and the evil music that you listened to growing up is now called oldies. (laughs) Or you're in a middle stage of your life and it's now just called classic rock. But it's not called new and it's not edgy. Because you listen to the person who's like narrating and they're like, later on today we'll be having a weekend seminar downtown. You're like, whoa, 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 it's not edgy anymore. They're like, a throwback concert will be giving. You're like, throwback concert? What's going on? Yes, you can love that music, but not if it's not loving your neighbor. See, the truth is you can love wearing that shirt, but maybe you shouldn't wear the shirt if it doesn't help your neighbor. You can love drinking that drink, but not if it doesn't help your neighbor. You can love speaking with those words, but don't do it if it doesn't help your neighbor. You see, this is the piece where Paul comes in and he goes, I've got to stop you there. I've got to have you understand what's going on. So we're called to care for our fellow Christians. Now, there's an interesting thing that comes up in Lutheran circles. And there's a phrase that comes out, and some of you already know what it is. You know what? If Christ has done all this, Martin Luther once told us that we should, come on, someone knows it, sin boldly. Yeah, any of you actually know where that comes from? Yeah, this is what I thought about it. Most of you have no idea where that actually comes from. So I thought I'd give you a small lesson in what Luther was actually writing about, and you'll realize when we do these little snapshots of what someone's saying, most of you probably already know this, you have it completely wrong as to what he was writing. 
So Martin Luther uh, is responding to a letter that Philip Melanchthon has written to him. Philip Melanchthon is the one who pens the Augsburg Confession of 1530 and works with Luther. Uh, but again, I'm not going to quiz you on that, but just sharing. He's working with another reformer. Melanchthon writes to him, and he's in Wittenberg. Uh, well, actually, not in Wittenberg, I'm sorry. Uh, Melanchthon's in Wittenberg writing the letter. Luther is at Wartburg Castle. Uh, Luther, if you don't know, it's like that fun little thing. That's why they made movies about it. Luther's coming home from talking to the Pope, and the, they actually grab him, and no one knows this, and they actually steal him away, uh, and no one knows this. So only like a few people know that where Luther is, so they actually think Luther has been stolen, and he gets swept off to Wartburg Castle. He actually translates the entire Bible at that point. That's where we get Luther's translation. He translates it while he's actually in captivity, uh, forced captivity at the hands of his own friends at Wartburg. So Melanchthon writes to him and says, hey, Wittenberg's crazy. Everybody's throwing everything out because this Reformation thing that seemingly started, we didn't know what it was going to do, and everyone wants to throw out anything that has to do with the church. They just want to throw it all out. And then Luther writes this letter, and I want to read an extended uh, chance so you can see what Luther was actually writing about when you heard the phrase, sin boldly. Luther writes back to Melanchthon, and here's the excerpt. He says, if you are a preacher of mercy, do not preach in imaginary, but the true mercy. If the mercy is true, you must therefore bear the true, not an imaginary sin. God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. Be a sinner and let your sins be strong or sin boldly. But let your trust in Christ be stronger and rejoice in Christ, who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. We will commit sins while we are here, for this life is not a place where justice resides. We, however, says Peter in 2 Peter 3.13, are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where justice will reign. It suffices that through God's glory, we have recognized the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. No sin can separate us from Him. Even if we were to kill or commit adultery thousands of times each day, do you think such an exalted Lamb paid merely a small price with a meager sacrifice for your sins? Luther wasn't telling you to sin boldly. He said, trust you have a God whose mercy is more bold than any sin you could imagine. But the challenge is, we heard sin boldly, and we all said what? Yes! Yes! We got it! We got it! And for centuries, people have approached Lutheran pastors and said, Pastor, I sinned boldly this week. And for centuries, Lutheran pastors have glared back at people and said, that stinks, man. That really stinks. Why is it that you think that that's something to exalt? Why is it that you got excited about your sin more than you got excited about Christ? Why is it that you want to tell the story of your sin more than you want to tell the story of the exalted Lord who died for your sin? Why is it that you want to hear someone's story of their restoration more than you want to hear the story of your restoration on Calvary? Why is it you want to hear, oh, I want to hear more about the addict, I want to hear more about the alcoholic, I want to hear more about the adulterous spouse. Why? You don't find any salvation in those stories. None. You know what you actually find? It's the same thing we talked about the law a few weeks. Examples of things you might actually get ready. Well, that does sound kind of interesting now that I heard your story. And I may actually now, see this is the weird part of what our adulterous heart does. We chase after other gods. God knew what he was doing in the first commandment, right? You should have no other gods before me. Because he knew we would always try to put something else. And normally, who do we put in front of God? You guys know this. Yeah, me. We put me. Because we like pleasing us. 
That's what Paul was writing to the church in Corinth about. Stop making it about me. (laughs) Corinth has a lot to do with us. See, the focus of what Luther wrote back to Philip Melanchthon in 1521 was not about sinning boldly. It was about having a God who's so bold to cover over a multitude of sins. Christ is that big. Everything we do is seen through the lens of the cross. How we go about life, how we go about living, how we go about speaking, we look first to the cross. And when you look to the cross, you see what? A Lord who stopped at nothing. That's what it is to be a Christian who follows in a cruciform shape. I see my Savior first, and I see his death, I see his rising. But remember, we're Easter people. So when you look to the cross, what do you see? You guys should know this. Empty. He's not there. So stop putting him on the cross. Stop pretending that that Christ has to do more for you. He's done it all. The cross is empty. It gets even better, though. You know the rest of the story. Now I look into the tomb. What do I see there? It's empty because he rose just as he said. That's why Paul continues. He says, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Do it all to God's glory because he did everything that he said he would. Paul then closes with these words that we close with this day. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. We look to Christ first, and through the cross, we see our resurrection. We see our birth. We see our life. All praise, honor, and glory be to him forever and ever. Amen. We're glad you've connected with us online and look forward to the opportunity to see you in person. On behalf of everyone at Jordan, we hope you will join us as we gather in worship of our Savior, Jesus Christ, every Sunday morning at 930 at Beaver Creek Cinemas in the peak of good living, Apex, North Carolina.